Father, we thank you today for the gift of your word. And as we have already prayed, would you help us to learn from it, to read it, to mark it, to inwardly digest it so that your very life would grow and flourish within us, that we may be transformed evermore into your likeness. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I had a professor in seminary who said, whenever you face difficult names, just pronounce them confidently and everyone will believe you. And I, I thought of that line as Jared was reading. Um, sometimes the readings are low-hanging fruit, and today was um, well done. I, I don't know if it was right or not, but you were confident, and so I believed every word. Um, I was at a coffee meeting last week, and it, I was standing waiting on my drink, and they were playing uh, music that was meant to be ignored. It was like smooth jazz elevator music. Uh, and yet as I sat there, I, I, the melody line caught my attention and I realized they were playing Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And um, something like just welled up within me and it took everything within me to resist going to the barista and saying, I know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, I see it. You know, this, this kind of subversive uh, Christmas sneaking in already. And it was this reminder that we've hit that time of year. It's the three-month-long Christmas season um, where we begin to celebrate already. And, you know, I'm sure we're already having Christmas sales and, and, you know, Black Friday hasn't even arrived and yet Christmas seems to be here or so we are told. And um, there's something in that that I'm just, like, it, it awakens in me my inner Scrooge and I have to deal with that. But I also think there's like a holy anger in that as well uh, because we as a culture don't know how to wait. And when we don't know how to wait, we don't know how to prepare for something significant. And so we just assume uh, if Christmas is good in three months or two months, it's good now. Let's just go ahead and, and celebrate. And yet what we're reminded of as Christians time and time again is we have to be people who know how to be prepared and ready for something to arrive. And even before we hit Advent, which is itself a four-week season of preparation for Christmas, our readings, in, especially in the gospel, our gospel readings already are starting to point us towards Advent, starting to bring us ever closer to that season and reminding us that the Lord is coming, what kind of people will we be when he arrives? We saw that last week and we see it again here today. Uh, if you were here last week or listened online, uh, we talked about the bridesmaids, a fairly familiar story where you have uh, they're called the ten virgins, and half of them are ready when the groom comes, and half of them are caught off guard. And today, right after that story, we pick up again in Matthew 25, and different players, different situation, yet largely the same punchline, largely the same themes that are introduced again here today through this story of the talents. What we see, just to kind of set it briefly, um, if you were, were not fully engaged or, or struggle to listen um, to the word read aloud, I know that's a, like a discipline we have to cultivate. So just as a reminder, um, even though we just heard it, just to help us settle into this story, um, instead of bridesmaids, the focus today is on servants. Servants who are all asked by a master to tend to this property and they live different ways of life. They live their life differently while the master is away. We're told off on a long journey, and yet the master 
said he would return, and eventually he does. He does eventually return. And so what we see then is he, in verse 19, comes and settles accounts. And so the focus of our reading, the rest of the story, is on what kinds of people these servants were while the master was away, as he then comes to settle accounts with them. And what we see is some of them were ready, just like last week, ready when he comes. And yet some of them, one in particular, has to deal with the shortcomings of their own failures and the consequences of the way that they lived their life. And so I'm sure there's many more things we could pull out. As I sat with this reading this week, there were three movements in this story. There may be more, but there are at least three that I want us to reflect on for a few minutes today. First is this, God gives according to our ability. First point is God gives according to our ability and what we learn from this story is that that is actually really good news. It's not a source of shame if you are given less than someone else. It's actually quite liberating because what this story reminds us of is God knows you and sees you and gives just as you are. He gives in ways that um, you, in your unique way that he's made you, you are meant to flourish. And so we see him giving, the master giving different amounts to three different servants. And these are pretty big amounts. And so uh, just for point of reference, one talent is about 6,000 denarii, and one denarii was roughly a day's wage. And so presumably this is a master giving a fortune, giving an inheritance of sorts, his whole uh, wealth, one might say, to these three servants to say, now go and care for this um, and uh, steward it faithfully. Um, but he gives it differently. To one of them, he gives five talents. To one of them, he gives two, and to another, one. But here's what's interesting. What we see as you read through the story is his response is exactly the same to the first two servants, even though one has significantly more wealth that he's asked to care for. To both of them, he says virtually the exact same thing. Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in to the joy of your master. And I think we struggle with this, if we could call it this, this kingdom economy, these kingdom economics, because we are so accustomed to believe in the core of our being that five is better than two, and 10 is better than five. And so we live our life in such a way as to say, how do I get to the top? How do I make sure I have the most? And we think that that should be the goal of our life, and we strive for it at any, any cost. We do this in our careers, but if we're not careful, we'll even do this in the way we live out our life with Christ. We do this with our spiritual lives as well, and we miss the key point here, that this story is actually very little to do with striving, and it's all about what do you do with what you've been given? And the master decides, the master decides which of these servants is best equipped for the different amounts. He gives, it says, according to our ability. And God knows us. We are known by the Lord, and so he knows what we're capable of and what it looks like for you and me to flourish and to be free in his kingdom. And so our faith is communal. We talk about this all the time. We live a communal, shared faith, and yet it's always personal as well. And God knows you better than you know yourself. And God loves you more than you even know how to love yourself. And so when he gives things to you and asks something of you, it's first and foremost because he knows you. I was reading a book with a friend this, a few weeks ago. We've been reading through this book. And the author talks about the story of the rich young ruler to kind of bring in another story here. And if, if you know the story, 
you likely have, like me, struggled with that story over the years of your life with Christ because I've always felt like, am I doing something fundamentally wrong by owning a car or owning a home or having any possession at all? Because you read the story and Jesus says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And some have taken those words and said, this is a universal call to every single Christian. Some have said this is uh, their call for their own life and they live it. And I've never quite known what to do with that story. I felt like, am I somehow missing the words of Jesus to me. And this book that I was reading with a friend was very helpful because he said, what we miss in that story is that Jesus knew the rich young ruler and he saw the rich young ruler and he knew in that man's heart, his possessions were closing him off to the life of God. And so the word that that man needed to hear from Jesus was very specific in order for him to be free in God's kingdom. And for some of us, it may be that same word, and we may need to wrestle with the grip that possessions have on our heart. And yet, it may be a different word to you as well. And you may need to then stop and say, what is the word that Jesus is speaking to me? What is it that closes my heart and life off from the life of God? And what, if I were standing before Jesus, would he say to me personally? What word might he need to say to say, this is the way for you to be free. This is the way for you to enter into the life of my kingdom. This is what it looks like for you, not for him or her or anyone else, but for you to be a faithful steward with what you've been given. There's something beautiful about the uniqueness in that, that you and I each have different abilities, and that's not to our shame, but it's because God knows us and knows how we are made and says, for you, this is what I give you so that you can be free. And so we have to then just say, how do I as best I can, not for someone else, but just for me, how do I steward this faithfully? And that's really the second point, the focus on stewardship itself. And so if point one is God gives according to our ability, the second point is about stewardship. Namely, stewardship implies growth and cultivation. Stewardship implies growth and cultivation. Failure for us as Christians, if you and I are to fail in our life with Christ, is not linked to our inability to get to the top. That's the American free market speaking to us, where we think we have to get to the top and anything less is a failure. No, the only way we fail in our life with Christ is if we fail to actually grow and if we become static in our life. What failure is, is to fail to be transformed ever more into the likeness of Christ. What we see in this story is two of the three servants are praised. Why are they praised? because they do something with what they've been given. They do something with what the master gives them. They tend to it, they cultivate it, they grow it. That's what faithful stewardship is. And we have to then remember, this is what it means to be a human being. We are made in the image of God. Fundamentally, God is a creative God. And so if we are to bear his likeness, you and I have to live generative lives, lives in which we create goodness and beauty in the world. We co-labor with God to bring about flourishing and richness in our world. This is what it means to create and bring wonder and beauty and order, all these things. And if we ignore that invitation, something else will take its place. Our lives are never neutral. 
And that's the thing we have to wrestle with. It's not like if I, if I take a few years off from growth or intentionally cultivating my life with God, I'll just stay right where I am. No, that's not true in, in our spiritual life. It's not true in our physical lives. Like if you were very fit and you decided, I'll take a few years off of exercise and I'll be able to pick right back up where I left off, you're in for a surprise. Uh, my wife and I just moved out to the country onto a bit of land. Uh, I'm learning this with physical land because we've taken a few months off fairly exhausted from, um, from the move, focusing on the inside of our house, and yet every day when I get home, I realize the ground around me is just decaying at every turn. The plants are dying, and they're being overgrown, and like we, we, it's not just um, a thing I can get around to when I have time and think it'll be right where I left it. No, it's decaying. And so part of our life with Christ is to say, if that's the tendency or the inclination in our lives in every area, including our life with Christ, we have to actively cultivate and grow our fidelity to the way of Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a faithful steward. It's why two of these three servants are praised, because they are actively engaged in the work of growth as their abilities allow them. Again, those, those two points are held together. This is a hard thing to do. This requires effort. Effort is not against the grace of God in our lives. It requires courage in many ways. It's uh, maybe the safer option, we would say, to take what we've been given, bury it in a hole, and hope that it stays just the same. And yet that's the exact failure of the third servant, the one who doesn't venture out in faith. Faith requires a venture. It requires a degree of risk and vulnerability. But this is what we're invited to in, in the life of, uh, of the Christian li uh, life. Because if we don't, um, you see the results. When we come and say, here's what was yours, take it. The response from the master clearly is meant to be a warning to us to say that is not what faithfulness looks like. Ultimately, it's fear. Fear is what drives that third servant. Fear of the master, fear that they're not going to be able to do what they're asked to do, that the invitation is too high. And so they just check out, bury it, and hope for the best. And yet, <laughs> it doesn't go well. And that's our, our third movement here. Having praised the first two, the third movement is the consequence of the actions of the third servant. And so the third and final point today, consequences are real for failing to cultivate the gifts that are given to us. There are real consequences when we fail to cultivate and steward these gifts. Last week I said this, I said the Lord is coming and he expects something of his people. In many ways, that was kind of the punchline of last week. And again, it's the same point that Jesus drives home as he ends this story. The master is returning. The groom is coming. And when he does, he expects something of his people. He expects to have found us living faithful lives. And when we don't, there are profound consequences when you and I live as fools to the very end of our lives. And we cannot have such a distorted view of mercy or of grace, that it lets us live by a lie that says there are no consequences for the way I live my life, or there are no, uh, uh, there's no significance to the choices and decisions and actions that I make. No, there are very real consequences for the way you choose to live your life. There's an urgency then to tend to this because there's a weight to the way we live. I think we have to learn to be sober-minded 
because this is a hard thing to do. It's hard for us to live with the consequence of our actions. It was hard for this servant because there's something in human nature that doesn't want to believe there are actually consequences for the way we live. We would rather have a scapegoat. We'd rather have someone else to put the blame on. And that's just human nature at its most basic. You see it all the way back in the book of Genesis where, uh, what, are we, what are we told? The woman made me do it. It wasn't my fault. The woman made me do it. It's not my guilt or my own responsibility. Uh, or no, the snake made me do it. The serpent made me do it. We're always looking to cast blame. What does this servant do? He does that ancient human thing that we all do in our own way. And he says, it's not my, my fault. The servant says, you're a terrible boss. You ask too much of me, and so it's your fault because you're, you're a harsh man. That's essentially what he says. He says, I saw what you wanted from me. Uh, I, I wanted nothing to do with it. Your standards are too high. So here, take your money. I wash my hands of it. In essence, that's, that's, the, um, that's the, the boiled down translation of what's going on here. Uh, I want nothing to do with it. Take your money and leave me alone. And the master calls him out. Basically, he says, you and I both know you're lying. You and I both know that it's not what's going on here at all. And that's where you get into this long discourse where it talks about uh, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you do not scatter seed. Hard for us to fully engage that part of the story, and we kind of get lost in those details. Those, fr- those images are images of interest. He's basically saying, uh, you, you and I both agree that I earn interest on my money, and yet he says, you didn't even do the bare minimum that a servant would be asked to do, which is it costs you nothing to at least put my money in the bank. And then I can at least earn interest. And you and I both agree. Like, by your own admission, you've said at least my money should earn interest. And, and in so doing, what, what the, the story is trying to do for us is to show and highlight this servant is a, a picture of a complete fool. Someone who, in every way, down to even the bare minimum, is lazy and, and ultimately evil. That's the word that's used. That he's evil because he fails to do even the basic request given to him by the master. And so it, it's a hard way to end a passage, just like last week. You know, Daryl ends, he says, <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth, the gospel of the Lord. And we're like, what is going on here? What do I do with this? Um, this is the key. Jesus is using dramatic language, and the point of it, the punchline, the movement of the story is meant to highlight and be a warning to us against being lazy or checking out in our own life with God. That's the the focus on this. It's not um, primarily even focused on the master. In some ways, this is uh, the natural consequence of the decisions we make. This is not the master being overly harsh. This is not the master being punitive in some way towards someone who just was misunderstood. No, the thrust of this story is trying to help us see that this is a natural result, the inevitable result of the path that that servant chose to walk. Again, helping us realize there are very real outcomes. If we stay on a course of life to the very end, it will lead us in a certain direction. It may lead us to a place none of us want to be. And so, maybe ultimately, the point we could take away today from this story is that a life of foolishness, a life of fear, is ultimately a self-selected path that leads to exile and isolation. And what is exile and isolation other than the dehumanizing reality of sin? Because to be a human is to be in community. That's why we have this beautiful icon of the Trinity. It reminds us every week we are meant for community. We're meant for belonging. And yet when we choose the way that this servant chose, we find ourselves 
dehumanized because we have failed to live in community, failed to live the very life with God. And so we can wrap up there. Do not be a foolish servant. Do not cast the blame on someone else. Take a very sober-minded, hard look at your own life and say, um, where is my life closed off to the invitation of God? What are the unique things that God has given me that has entrusted to me based on my own ability, based on the fact that he knows me and loves me? And what is he asking me to do with those gifts? We'll close with a prayer. One of my favorite prayers, it's an ancient prayer uh, from St. Ephraim the Syrian. And I don't know if it was consciously written with uh, the parable of the talents on his heart or mind, but I believe, I believe at some level, even subconsciously, it had to have been because it so beautifully ties together what we've been talking about. And so uh, why don't you stand as you're able, and we'll stand attentively for prayer, and I'll pray this over us, and then we'll continue with the Nicene Creed. Lord and Master of my life, cast away from me, the spirit of laziness, idle curiosity, love of power, and vain talk. But grant me, your servant, the spirit of moderation, humility, patience, and love. Yes, Lord and King, grant me to see my own faults and not to judge my brothers and sisters, for you are blessed forever.